Hello, my name is Kevin Fernando. I'm a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and also Education Director of GP Notebook Education. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcast, a bite-sized regular chat for all of us working in primary care. Podcasts will cover clinical tips and hacks, as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. Now, for the next few episodes of the podcast, we've got something a little bit different for you. I've been recently involved in planning a series of webcasts for healthcare professionals in the UK, which are all taking place during May 2021 as part of what we're calling Chronic Conditions Month. The webcasts, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to help all of us working in primary care with the significant challenges we've faced in diagnosing and managing chronic conditions over the past year in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Healthcare professionals in UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chroniconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining us. And to accompany the, these webcasts, the Chronic Conditions faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which we provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimize care here and now across a range of conditions. So without further delay, please enjoy the first of these special episodes now. And this one features myself and Dr. Steve Holmes. Hello, I'm Steve Holmes. I'm a general practitioner in Somerset, and I'm joined today by Kevin Fernando, who will introduce himself in a moment. But we're going to be talking about a really fascinating subject of use of steroids and what we need to be aware of and how we can manage that. Um, this is part of our introduction to Chronic Conditions Month 2021 uh, to be held throughout May. And during that time, you'll be able to get hold of a whole lot of um, inf information like these podcasts, but also interactive and informative webcasts designed to address the primary care challenges that we have today in both diagnosing and managing chronic conditions at a time when COVID-19 has thrown out the rule book. Kevin, can I just ask you to introduce yourself and give a bit of background about your GP work and your other more specialist interests? Yeah, th thanks very much, Steve. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Kevin Fernando. I'm a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre, just east of Edinburgh. Uh, I've had a long-standing interest in diabetes and medical education. I'm currently Scottish lead of the Primary Care Diabetes Society, uh, and I'm also education director for GP Notebook e Education. So as you said, uh, as you alluded to, Steve, uh, we, we continue to work in very challenging times. Uh, as you said, COVID has really chucked out the, the rule book. And certainly what we're really appreciating is the the, the, the consequences now of a, a, acute or, or even chronic COVID infection. It's very much been a, a cardiometabolic virus, hasn't it, rather than a, a respiratory virus. Uh, and certainly that's been a, a, a real area of interest of mine over this last 12 months now, isn't it? We've been uh, dealing dealing with uh, COVID, and uh, it, uh, it certainly from the diabetes point of view, uh, we, we, we're well aware, aren't we, that diabetes, both type one and type two, are major risk factors for adverse COVID nineteen consequences. So anything that we can do in primary care to help mitigate that that future risk of adverse COVID nineteen consequences, of course, very important for for my patients living with diabetes, and indeed all, all of our patients in primary care. 
I agree. And I've, I've got a respiratory interest and I'm running um, COVID recovery clinics at the moment with people who've had symptoms for between six and 12 months. And I think that certainly those that seem to have been more prone to death have been in that cardiovascular type end of the market, often male, often older people, and also black and minority ethnic groups. But there's a whole swathe of people we're also seeing now coming in with other symptoms of um, neurological type symptoms, cognitive um, symptoms coming through, as well as some with pulmonary, pulmonary emboli, etc etc this is a really challenging time for clinicians everywhere and and probably my little word of warning is if you do see somebody who's had covid just keep thinking all the time what the possible cause would be and seeing someone in my covid recovery clinic referred in who'd had polymyalgia for probably four to five months age 65 with typical symptoms in his shoulders and thighs with a very high plasma viscosity and saying this is the best i've felt for months after being prescribed steroids we shouldn't forget our general clinical skills here. We are really vital to make sure this we don't make too many assumptions. Let's kick off. One of the key things about steroids is remember at medical school, we're taught a list. So we're going to play a game of how many side effects can you think of that are relevant with, with, um, with the use of steroids at a significant dose. So Kevin, over to you first. Well, of course, given my specialist interest, I'd have to start with either steroid-induced hyperglycemia or, or even steroid-induced overt diabetes. Uh, uh, can, can be very common, especially once you exceed those physiological uh, doses of steroids. So your adrenals pump out the equivalent, roughly the equivalent of 7.5 milligrams of prednisolone or equivalent steroid. So really, once you're above those doses, uh, the risks of, of uh, steroid-induced uh, hyperglycemia and, and diabetes escalate. So that's my my starter. And, and I think that's a, a really important thing. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on as well. Um, so probably I would I would talk about the risk of uh, adrenal crises with steroids. And again, that's the 7.5 milligrams seems to be the magical number, but some people go up and down. And, and it, that's my key message on this to colleagues out there is remember intranasal steroids, inhaled corticosteroids, and the the stuff they may be slapping onto their skin as well. Any other tips from that, Kevin? Uh, absolutely. And, well, in terms of other steroid-related side effects, I think the other thing we really need to be aware of is osteopenia and osteoporosis as well. Um, that that the, the risk of that escalates again with steroid dose. And once again, that magical number of 7.5 milligram uh, comes back to us because we, we had an updated osteoporosis guideline published by Science, so proudly a Scottish, <laughs> Scottish guideline, um, just updated in January of uh, this year, 2021. And there was a nice few take-home messages, uh, a few take-home messages about glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis. And the bottom line was, again, anyone uh, taking 7.5 milligrams of prednisolone or greater for longer than three months should uh, definitely be offered a fracture risk assessment using something like the Q-fracture tool, but really should should be offered bone protective therapy, uh, some form of anti-osteoporosis therapy, uh, something like a bisphosphonate that we're you know, w- well-versed at using in primary care. So another important complication potential complication of steroid use yeah and and one of the things i reflect back on is how poor we've been in uh respiratory care 
at not thinking about osteoporosis in people that are having frequent oral corticosteroids and high-dose inhaled corticosteroids, yet these people also smoke and are less active, so are even more at risk. And similarly, our rheumatological colleagues managing people with steroids for quite a long period of time without um, realising and getting on with that risk factor for osteoporosis. Absolutely, because you, you mentioned polymyalgia. So to, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, but I think typical duration of steroids for someone with polymyalgia rheumatica is around two years still, isn't it? Uh, um, and if we're going to be committing them to a high-dose high steroid from the outset, we should be offering both bone protection and, and gastric protection. Because actually the other thing the sign guideline pointed out is that the rate of bone loss with steroids, high-dose steroids above that 7.5, is greatest in the first 6 to 12 months of treatment. So getting that bone protection in early is very important. Yeah, really good point. Let's not wait until they've had the fracture or we think about it at the annual review before we do something. And I guess some of the other changes we that I commonly see are those skin changes in people that are older where they start to get that sort of purpura developing. Um, they're much more prone to catching themselves if they go into a garden or if a, a pet comes in and jumps up and says hello. Um Really, you know, if, although it's not one of those major things, it does have a big disability factor for a lot of people who are older who've had significant exposure to corticosteroids. So I think it's your go now. And I yeah, and again, relative, uh, re relevant. Sorry to our older, perhaps more frail individuals, cataracts as well uh, you know, can have a debilitating impact on quality of life. Of course, and increased falls risk in in someone who is you know already at risk of falls in terms of our frail patients. So cataracts definitely something else we need to be aware yeah. of. And, and I guess the other one that I sometimes see in when, when we admit people into community hospital beds is patients who we give relatively high doses of corticosteroid to, and then they start to get confused and hallucinate and have almost a psychosis with it. So again, we shouldn't forget the mental health aspects. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And I suppose only on the other one I would add on is Hypertension, you know, long-term steroids do lead to, to hypertension. So we do need to monitor blood pressure as well and anyone on, on long-term steroids. And if we had a gift available to people, we could ask them now to write down another 10 or 12 other side effects that they can think of and yeah. send it in. And we will send you something back by return of post. But as we don't have a gift at the moment, <laughs> it would just be for your pleasure and interest to just think down some of the side effects you've seen over time with, with corticosteroids and just recognize the importance of managing them there. Absolutely. So I was going to say, Steve, uh, you'd, you'd brought up one of your concerns was that risk of adrenal crisis. So I just wanted to talk about that that risk of adrenal crisis, is that, if that's okay with you, because I know we're well versed in primary care about the risk of adrenal crisis for our patients living with Addison's disease. But you know, as we're both aware, anybody on long-term steroids is also at risk of adrenal crisis, aren't they? And uh, and I think this is something that's very important from a patient uh, safety point of view. And actually, a really useful resource here is our good old BNF. Uh, the current BNF um, has a really helpful couple of pages on, first of all, what constitutes high-dose steroids and, and what perhaps we should consider doing um, to, to try and mitigate that future risk of adrenal crisis. And I suppose the first thing that struck me from that BNF section was adrenal suppression can actually last for a year or more after stopping steroids. So uh, not something just we need to be aware whilst patients are on steroids, but 
potentially up to a year afterwards. Uh, that really sort of struck me. What, what's your thoughts on that, Steve? And that, that's quite a stunning figure. But yeah. in actual fact, if we think about clinically as we slow down steroid use, we do often find people feeling very tired for persistent periods afterwards yes. and needing to maintain that. And so perhaps it's not quite as surprising as, as we would anticipate. But I think, I mean, one of the one of the things that is that hit the headlines was somebody called Emma Frame, a little girl aged, I think, somewhere between seven and nine, um, from Scotland, who was being seen for quite complex asthma by a paediatric team, and was prescribed a dose of fluticasone propionate of two thousand micrograms daily. Now that's the equivalent of four thousand micrograms of beclometasone and is roughly the equivalent of about 20 milligrams of steroids. Unfortunately, Emma developed acute diarrhea and and vomiting and was admitted to hospital, and people didn't continue her inhalers. It wasn't thought of as a medicine as such. It wasn't really picked up, and Emma unfortunately died. And that created quite a revolution within Scottish healthcare in terms of trying to monitor people on inhaled corticosteroid. But perhaps if I just reinforce, more than a thousand micrograms of beclometasone or budesonide is considered a high dose and very high dose where you would certainly be much more concerned would be 2,000. Thanks for highlighting that. It's very important. Sorry, sorry, carry on. I was going to say fluticasone propionate is twice as potent so the figure you'd be looking at there would be 500 micrograms daily as being high dose and beclometasone is now available in a small molecule um, inhalers as well as the standard molecules and the small molecule inhalers the dose is equipotent as well so small molecule beclometasone fluticasone 500 fluticasone uh, sorry beclometasone normal and budesonide normal, 1,000 is considered high. And something just to bear in mind rather than having to look through each one. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Steve. That is so important. I, I'm very, very aware of that case you mentioned. That was discussed locally uh, when, sadly, that, that tra- tragic death occurred. So uh, you mentioned inhaled steroids. I just wanted to just touch a wee bit more on, on oral steroids. And you, you you already mentioned polymyalgia. So in North Berwick, I have a very elderly population, over 25, I think nearly 28% now of my list size is over the age of 65. So as such, I see a lot of polymyalgia and we start a lot of steroids for uh, polymyalgia. Uh, and and the other the fact that the BNF told me was anybody over this 7.5 milligram dose again of prednisolone or equivalent steroid for three weeks or longer can lead to uh, adrenal suppression. So I thought very important uh, take home message for us all. And as I also mentioned, you know, the adrenals, our adrenals produce around about 7.5 milligrams of prednisolone equivalent daily. So during withdrawal of steroids for, say, polymyalgia, steroids can be reduced reasonably rapidly down to physiological doses. But thereafter, we do need to be more cautious, don't we? We do need to reduce them more slowly because of this risk of adrenal crisis. Um, and and this is really what, what is the crux of what I wanted to briefly talk about just now the importance of sick day guidance for anybody on long-term steroids with significant illness, not just people living with Addison's disease. 
So the first thing, of course, uh, and, and, and you, I know there's been a lot of work done in English and in England on this recently is everyone needs to have a steroid emergency treatment card, don't they, Steve? Um, and and uh, I think a key information summary or out of hours handover um, electronic summary is very important, isn't it, to warn other uh, so care, care providers that that patient sat in front of them or on the telephone or appearing virtually in front of them is on long-term steroids. But what I found really helpful was guidance from the Society of Endocrinology, published a few years ago now in 2016, uh, which clearly tells us that anybody on long-term steroids, uh, such as prednisolone for polymyalgia, if they suffer any significant dehydrating illness, they need to double their steroid dose and continue that for at least 48 hours post-resolution of their illness. And thereafter, they can resume their normal steroid dose. And importantly, if they're unable to increase their dose, we as HCPs in primary care, GPs, nurses, pharmacists, should consider offering 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone, either IM or IV, as steroid replacement. And they actually updated their guidance just very briefly last year, year because of COVID, of course. And so they've subtly changed their guidance. Um, if anybody's on long-term steroids and suffered a significant COVID-19 infection, so if they're uh, bed-bound with it with a significant py pyrexia, if they're on 5 to 15 milligrams of prednisolone, we need to increase their dose to 10 milligrams twice a day. But if they're on a baseline prednisolone dose of over 15 milligrams, they can actually continue that dose, but take it in two equal split doses. So I thought some very helpful information for us in primary care on sick day, uh, sick day guidance for anybody on long-term steroids. What, what your take on that? What's your take on that, Steve? I'd agree. And I remember we've gone from blue to red. Um, a lot of us will remember the old blue steroid card that we were supposed to be handing out. And there is a big national push to make sure appropriate people have a newly designed, carefully highlighted uh, red alert card. If you haven't got them, it's worthwhile just checking it up on the internet, very widely available across the UK. And you can get a bundle into the practice and make sure that your local pharmacists are handing them out as well because we really can't allow this sort of error to happen in, in healthcare anymore. It's one of those sort of um, events that is completely avoidable. So really important for us to, to take action on. Perhaps one of the things to sort of just quickly cover as well in, in terms of the respiratory side is I see quite a few patients on um, oral corticosteroids for COPD and have 10 or 12 exacerbations a year. The average in the proper trials where people are under secondary care is about 1.5 exacerbations per year. And that is those under specialist care, not in generalist practice. A lot of the research in generalist practice puts that down at about 0.75 to 1. So if we get this right, we should actually be reducing that steroid load in our COPD patients. I think the other key factor would be asthma. Your average patient with asthma will have an exacerbation every 12 years and will turn up to an emergency department or get admitted every 40 years. If you have somebody who has um, more exacerbation, certainly been in hospital twice, that should really ring all sorts of alarm bells. And one of the common things that's happening now in respiratory medicine, as well as in rheumatology, is 
Don't just slap them on steroids and keep them on steroids. They're often steroid-limiting drugs like we would use in rheumatology, like we use in psoriasis, that we can use in, in asthma now to try to reduce that steroid load. And so really important just to be aware of common frequencies and watch out for those patients that aren't quite normal. Absolutely. I mean, that, that was a, a real unknown unknown for me, to be honest, Steve, that, that those statistics you gave me there, that the fact that one uh, average person will have an exacerbation just every 12 years and A&E every, every 40 years. So I think very, very important message for us all working in primary care as GPs, nurses, nurses and pharmacists. Yep. As a quick aside, I used to ask a group of uh, mixed professionals this in, in uh, talks, and usually the respiratory consultants and the A&E consultants and doctors would think it was highest at about eight or nine per year as an average. Most of my GP colleagues would be sort of saying four to five is probably about average for someone with COPD and probably two for someone with asthma. And my practice nurse colleagues who saw a much wider berth every year and reviewed them would say two for asthma. Oh, and we don't see it that commonly. Sorry. We don't see it very commonly in asthma and probably two for COPD. I think it's the people that we see coming in are actually a skewed population. And it's worthwhile trying to look at those with a little bit more detail to check out whether there's something else going on. Absolutely. So I've got a couple of questions for you, Stephen. I've certainly been guilty of this myself, over-prescribing steroids, uh, particularly for exacerbations of COPD. What, what are the benefits of longer courses of steroids for COPD, uh, for, for exacerbations of COPD? Uh, should I be doing that? Right. The NICE, the GOLD guidance, and the Cochrane Review all recommend now 30 milligrams for five days. So there's unity in the recommendation. There, the Cochrane reviews show worse outcomes at 14 days than five to seven days. There is a little bit of debate about five to seven days, um, but there's no great evidence that a longer course will help the patient. There is considerable evidence, both in outpatient care and in hospital care, that the outcomes are worse with more protracted courses for a proper COPD exacerbation. And I guess the other thing I commonly hear is my um, patients phoning up and saying, I've had a week's worth. How about just another one now? I'm not quite better. Yeah. <laughs> the the answer to that is you probably won't be because most people are going to take two or three weeks to get over their exacerbation. If you're starting to improve, don't have another course of dangerous steroids and increase your risk of antimicrobial resistance by having more protracted antibiotics. Good. That's some real good, great practical advice. So any other tips for us on how we can avoid overuse of steroids uh, in primary care, particularly for, for COPD? And and I guess the other, the other key quick things are, number one, make if you're using inhalers, make sure the patient's using them properly. Make sure they are trying to adhere to it, but also make sure they have the technique to adhere to their inhaled corticosteroids. So get their inhaler technique checked. If you can't do it, find someone who can. That may be your local pharmacist. It may be one of the nurses in your practice or a community nurse. If you're not competent, I say there are 119 different variants out there. So I, most people, unless they are particularly um, strange, won't know how to use every inhaler on the market. Get somebody who does. Good, good stuff. And I know, and I know you've told me this before. Not not every exacerbation needs steroids, does it, Steve? No, I mean a lot of a lot of very a lot of patients who get very panicky 
will feel they get breathless for 25 minutes, half an hour to an hour, and think, well, it's about time I took my steroids now. If somebody is very acutely breathless, it probably isn't an exacerbation. That usually takes two or three days to brew up. And if they are very acutely breathless, we should be thinking cardiac or, or other causes. If they do panic and start their steroids, the tendency is then to just take more and more. And that's where I hear about litigation of people who've been prescribed 10, 12 steroid courses in the year, something that I think we all know is inherently incorrect. Probably I would be suggesting don't put any um, oral corticosteroids on a repeat prescription for people with asthma or COPD. Make sure you review them at least by telephone, if not face-to-face after every exacerbation. So shall we move on to a bit about the diabetes side? Yeah, absolutely. Because you, you, I see quite a few people who've had a number of courses of oral corticosteroids and a few that are on low dose all the time. Is there any value in screening for that? So uh, I mentioned at the outset, absolutely, we need to be aware of steroid-induced hyperglycemia, steroid-induced diabetes uh, as well. And and again, it's all about that magical number of 7.5 milligrams. And the the Q diabetes uh, score that uh, many of you will be familiar with uh, is a diabetes prediction tool by the Q Research Group, has use of regular steroids uh, as a risk factor in it. So that's a very useful starting point if you're worried about the risk of diabetes of that person in front of you on long-term steroids, especially if there are other risk factors such as family history of type 2 diabetes. So really anyone um, anyone we're committing to, I guess similar sort of rules as we said with osteoporosis, anyone you're committing to a longer term uh, course of steroids over 7.5 milligrams for three months or longer, I'd definitely be wanting to ch- ch- check an HbA1c uh, to, and ensure that they don't have any uh, either developing uh, steroid-induced hyperglycemia or have established steroid-induced diabetes. And, and I guess that's probably a key tip is this really should be part of any template in long-term condition management is just to be aware of that sort of risk and screen where appropriate. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, the, the, you know, our patients living with long-term conditions, so many factors that we need to be aware of, they need to be aware of them. But absolutely, uh, glycemia is, is very important. Of course, clinically, that can be often quite apparent, can't it, Steve, when they de- develop those motic symptoms of hyperglycemia the thirst, the polyuria, the lethargy, uh, or sometimes the things like cataracts, of course, intervene as well. So uh, absolutely, if any of these symptoms come about, we should be checking uh, checking blood glucose uh, straight away if we can, using a blood glucose monitor and then checking an, an HbA1c or oh, yeah, fasting blood glucose can be very helpful too. And we do see quite a few people who's, when they have a course of steroids, their, their glucose levels start to go up. Any tips on management there? Yeah, yeah. So great, great, great question. Uh, we're pragmatists, aren't we, in primary care? So we, we don't want to complicate things too much where possible. Uh, and often, you know, simple, you know, like like with all of our patients with type 2 diabetes, still offer that same lifestyle advice um, to, to try and, uh, you know, minimize hyperglycemia. But often, of course, these individuals do need pharmacological intervention. And actually, uh, initial intervention is often good old-fashioned sulfonylurea. So my standard treatment for steroid-induced hyperglycemia or steroid-induced diabetes initially is glycoside, just starting dose of 40 milligrams 
programs um, is very effective at tackling the glycemia we see with steroids. Um, so very importantly, though, of course, as, uh, as I'm sure we're all aware, sulfonylureas, including glycoside, carry a high risk of hypoglycemia. So, uh, you know, whilst I do use uh, sulfonylureas in this situation, if I do start them, I make sure uh, that patient in front of me has access, has been taught, and has access to self-monitoring of blood glucose equipment. So I'd send them to see my practice nurse to be issued with a blood glucose monitor, taught how to check their blood glucose, and more importantly, how to react to that value. And also, equally importantly, uh, if they're drivers, uh, what to do in terms of driving and blood sugars as well. But yeah, initially, often all we need to do is a low-dose glycoside. If things do progress, more often than not, individuals do need to just go straight on to insulin. So I know some of us do start insulin in primary care, others perhaps not so confident. So this is definitely a situation where we would phone a friend um, to, 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 uh, uh, to start uh, to, to, to help initiate insulin. Just a, 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 a low-dose basal insulin in the first instance is often very helpful um, for, uh, for steroid-induced hyperglycemia. And when we've got steroid-induced hyperglycemia, hyperglycemia and we are monitoring them, and it goes back to normal. When when would you be recommending we put down diabetes as the diagnosis? Yes, yeah, so this is a very, very good question. And certainly, no, no, I suppose no clear right or wrong answer here. The fact that that individual has developed steroid-induced hypoglycemia or, or diabetes suggests they have a propensity for, for diabetes. So I, I would suggest that individual does need to be established with a di diagnosis of diabetes and does need monitored, uh, you know, at least annually in the long term. Of course, you know, like our patients who have put their diabetes in remission, you know, that that annual review might just be a you know a check of an HbA1c and a pat on the back you know well done for maintaining your HbA1c within normal normal uh, uh, limits. But uh, I, I'm personally very cautious about using that read code diabetes resolved. Uh, there, you know, the read code does uh, exist and it has been really used for people who had steroid related diabetes. But as I said, because of that propensity, uh, I think that individual should still uh, be kept on the annual follow up. And that's the beauty of the diabetes in remission read code. It ensures people remain under follow up for things like their foot check, retinal screen, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the diabetes diabetes resolved read code actually takes them out of follow-up, uh, which I personally don't think is, is, is in their best interests. And I think that's a useful point, isn't it, of retinal screening and foot checking, even if you think that things aren't so bad control-wise at that time, it's probably safer. And it's not, you know, it's not invasive, it's not dangerous for the patient, but it will protect against those, those more complex problems. Uh, absolutely. I appreciate it. it has workload implications for all of us in primary care, uh, but absolutely in, in maintaining uh, a patient safety and doing what's right for the patient, I think it's very important they do remain uh, under, you know, at least annual review um, and, and going from there. Excellent. I'm, what I'm tempted to do now is sort of just think through about some of the key points that we'll just reinforce from what we've heard. But I think probably what I've been hearing from you, Kevin, is 7.5 milligrams should ring all sorts of alarm bells. Look out uh, in terms of prednisone, look out for other chemicals and drugs being added in. So your topical um, creams, your intranasal steroids, your inhaled corticosteroids, sum them all up. There is data on how to do that would be my key thing and watch out for all the complications. Any thoughts from your side as well? 
Yeah, I completely agree with you. I suppose I would very much reiterate the importance of, of sick day guidance for anybody on long-term steroids, not just those living with Addison's disease. They also do have the potential to de develop adrenal crisis, which, as we know, can be uh, sadly fatal on, on occasion. So the importance of increasing counseling about increasing steroid dose, specifically doubling steroid dose during any significant dehydrating and pyrexial illness. And if they're unable to increase because of that illness, for example, consider 100 milligrams hydrocortisone parenterally, as we would do for someone living with uh, Addison's disease who's acutely unwell. Kevin, absolutely brilliant. I've learned a lot this afternoon. I hope everybody listening to this podcast will be learning a, a considerable amount too. Thank you all for listening. We hope you found it helpful. Please make sure you register both for the other podcasts in this series and for our interactive webcast brought to you as part of the Chronic Conditions Month 2021 in May. You can sign up at chroniconditions.co.uk. Thank you very much from me. And thanks very much uh, from me. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Mm -hmm.